As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. The Athletic. The race is on, and Max Verstappen pulled off a classic spin and win triumph as he came from 10th on the grid to take an unlikely Hungarian Grand Prix victory. But yet again, Ferrari caught the eye for all the wrong reasons with its strategic decisions, once more under the spotlight. I'm Ed Straw, and joining us to dissect a gripping race at the Hungaroring are Scott Mitchell and Mark Hughes. Scott, how's things? You're here with me at the Hungaroring, so I've got a reasonable idea, but I like a nice update. Yeah, no, all good. Um, good good Grand Prix, I thought. An enjoyable Hungarian Grand Prix. Felt like a quite a quite a classic race, actually, in terms of um not necessarily classic in terms of going down as one of the greats, but classic as in just just a straightforward, authentic race, uh different things going on, different strategic calls, but no no reliance on silly safety cars or controversial decisions or anything like that. It was just um the 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 best team and, and driver combinations came through and the ones that were, were found short um, fell down the order. Yep, that's what we like to see. And Mark Hughes, you're watching from afar. How's your weekend been? Uh, yes, it uh, was very enjoyable to uh, to to watch it. It was um, actually, thinking about it, Hungara Rings produced a lot of classic races in the hybrid era, hasn't it? Um, it's unusual that we have a dull one here. And there was that phase in the race where... Um, Verstappen had got it pretty much under control, but um, Leclerc was being caught by Russell, who was being caught by Sainz, and they're all being caught by Hamilton, and it was all building up to this big crescendo. And we've seen that a, f- a few times at this place. There's something about it. Um, but this weekend, it was all, um, yeah, it was it was all a bit mixed up by the variable conditions through the weekend, and um, I sort of shuffled the pack a bit, and uh, we we got to see it sort of shuffling itself back into uh, what turned out to be the the um the the appropriate order and it was a pretty thrilling uh, process yeah made for an interesting weekend to end this first half of the season i have to say the hungaroring it has a bit of a reputation as being a, a bit of a boring circuit but it has produced a lot of a lot of good races even before the hybrid era some great passes there pk on senna going way back it really is a, a track that seems to be able to produce action, even though it has had a few dull ones over the years. Well, let's get straight on with it, Mark, and we'll start off with the traditional question of how the race was won. Obviously, Max Verstappen started 10th after losing hybrid deployment on his final Q3 run. He had a big lockup that ruined his earlier lap. So take us through it. And I might suggest that unusually you start off with an important decision made after the reconnaissance laps. Yeah, it was a crucial decision, both um, Verstappen and Sergio Perez went to the grid on the hard tyres. And that was the first time either the Red Bull or the Ferrari had been on the hard tyres all weekend. And 
they both said there's no way these tires are going to work. They, they, they're just stone cold and they're going to take forever to come up temperature with temperature. It would be a disaster. And they'd planned on doing a one-stop strategy based around the hard tire. So that went out the window and the whole team just recalibrated itself and said, okay, let's uh, let's switch them. We'll start on the softs. And um, that committed them to a two-stop, of course. And um, everything was just recalibrated from there. And it was just, as Verstappen said afterwards, you need to have a feel for these things, not just as a driver, but on the, on the, on the pit wall as well. And you've got to listen to the driver. And Red Bull have always been very good at that, very sharp and um, very adaptable and flexible. And uh, so, yeah, the, the plan A went straight out of the window as soon as they did the reconnaissance lap and they um, started again. Uh, Mercedes had already done uh, quite a few laps on the hard on Friday. And they'd come to the conclusion that they didn't want to be on it again. It was a disaster. Um, and it said that the reasoning was that if it was a, a bad tire at 47 degrees, the harder compound is going to be even worse at the cooler conditions of race day. So they, they had no intention of going anywhere near the hard. So they were committing themselves to a two-stop strategy because the soft and the medium didn't have the range to do a one-stop. Um, so it was only Ferrari that was keeping their options open about maybe doing a one or maybe doing a two, and hence why they started on the medium. And they never got to find out how bad the hard was because they hadn't driven to the grid on it and until uh, they put it on Leclerc's car at his second pit stop, and it was a disaster. But having said that, as Carlos Sainz pointed out, the Ferrari wasn't quick on any of the compounds. Yes, the hard was a disastrous tyre, and, and Ferrari ended up putting it on Leclerc's car, but when you look at the pace that it, it should have had, that it would normally have, it just didn't have the pace. And the, the last um, stint when Sainz and Hamilton were both on the hard, um, Hamilton took a second a lap out of him, average, over the over nine laps before passing him. That's not a typical performance. And if we saw the advantage that Ferrari had on Friday in the hot on the hot track, had it been like that throughout the weekend that that temperature being like that throughout the weekend that had such a big advantage i'm sure we would have just seen a ferrari one two from the front row but as it was um yeah there was something in their setup that just did not work those tires properly um the mercedes had really got those tires working very nicely indeed they'd done a pretty radical setup change on friday night um so with ferrari sort of not being in their sweet spot, but Mercedes being right in its sweet spot and Verstappen being a long way back on the grid. Um, the early, the, the first stint wasn't really that, um, you know, it, it, the race ended up being about Verstappen and Hamilton and they, they just really didn't figure very much in that first stint. It seemed to be all about Russell versus the two Ferraris. Um, but that wasn't the as it turns out that wasn't the significant thing, and it was the progress that Verstappen was making, and in particular Red Bull. As soon as they got within sight of the the, the next fast car ahead, they were very decisive, and they just called them straight in for the undercut. So that undercut them past Hamilton at the first stops, and then they did it again at the second stops, until um, yeah, he was just it was Verstappen versus Leclerc, but Leclerc was on those hard tires, which were disastrous. Verstappen got past him. Then immediately spun Leclerc repassed them, uh, but within four laps, they, those hards were so bad. Within four laps, Max was back past them again, and uh, yeah, it was then just about who was going to finish second. And it was a, it was a brilliant performance by both Verstappen and and the whole team. It was just superb. And um, the, yeah, they were yes, they were helped a little bit by Ferrari not getting a, a good feel of the the, the tires and etc. But it, it was still a brilliant performance. You get an explanation for the Verstappen spin? Not really. I mean, it, it, the, the tires hadn't been on very long. It was a bit of a it was a bit of a gust going on, but no, I, I, I think um, it was just over exuberance. But once once it had got past the point of no return, Max is very good at rescuing these situations. He just hit the gas at the perfect moment to spin it round completely three sixty, so minimised the time loss. Probably only lost a couple of seconds. It was enough to let Leclerc back past, but. Um, yeah, you minimise the damage of it, but no, I haven't. Have you heard a, any any further explanation? Max was talking about having some issues with um, with the clutch and some uh, some gear shifts, mm -hmm. and he felt that the spin was a result of that. So I'm not entirely sure. Um, I'm not entirely sure how that would have manifested itself. It, it 
it it seemed like an odd place to have that kind of spin. I I understand how it could happen just as a just as a completely genuine mistake because you there comes a point where you pick up the throttle and then you you can get quite greedy I think out of that corner and have the rear moving around. So I I thought it was a genuine mistake. Max sort of suggesting that there might have been a bit of a reason behind it on 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 that score but it reminded me of um was it a 2019 German Grand Prix? Max had a spin and win, didn't he? When when we had those uh, those difficult conditions during the uh, during the Grand Prix, I seem to remember Max doing a nice little 360 coming out into the um, the final couple of corners in in that race as well. Yeah, it does happen uh, sometimes. Unusual to see that that sort of error, but as Mark said, absolutely minimise the time loss. Uh, but Mark, in terms of the pace, can you quantify a little bit in terms of what the sort of hierarchy was between Red Bull and Mercedes? Was there any way for Mercedes to have done anything to to, to get a better result? No, the, the hierarchy absolutely was Red Bull. Verstappen, because Perez was nowhere this weekend, um, Verstappen was probably, I think, we, we didn't re- – because once once he got the lead, um, he, he, was, he wasn't really – pushing that hard it was just the time that Hamilton was and that's when Hamilton got the fastest lap of the race but it, it looked like he had a couple of two or three tenths in hand over um, Mercedes and I think you know it, what we were seeing was the, the Ferrari falling out of its it, it, it's its normal place because of whatever setup choices they'd made for the cooling conditions um, and Mercedes being a little bit closer than they usually are to the pace, but it was a missing car from the the hierarchy, if you like. So it would normally be Ferrari, Red Bull, and then a gap to Mercedes, and Ferrari had fallen out of that. So you just had Red Bull and a, and a gap to Mercedes. Um, and in addition to that, because Max was uh, out of position on the grid, it, it it appeared that Mercedes had actually made a lot more progress than they really had. They had made progress. This was definitely their most competitive showing, which was ironic after their disastrous Friday. Um, but it's still, uh, you know, if everything runs, had had FP3 been a, a dry session and Ferrari and Red Bull had discovered just how far out they were on their setups, um, especially Ferrari, then I think you would have seen that corrected to the normal hierarchy in qualifying and, and race. And But because we didn't, um, it, it, it created this uh, sort of false picture. It shows how little it can take in terms of variation of conditions to scramble things up a little bit. I think that's often underestimated. Scott, let's move on to the next topic. As always, we have questions from the Race Members Club to be answers. The first of which is actually a repeat question from Danny Elliott from last week, who says again, what is it with Ferrari's strategy? There's a similar question from Matt Wyatt as well, who says Ferrari needs to sack its entire strategy department discuss <laughs> yeah that's a that's obviously a, a, a bit strong never really want to advocate someone have deserving to lose their job or, or anything like that but I do think that there is um there is a need for Ferrari to get a lot sharper on on strategy and Mattia Bonotto after the race was trying to play this down and say it wasn't a matter of strategy it was a matter of performance and pace and the the, the simple the, the the main priority is simply that they couldn't get the car to work the way they expected it to, and it's the first time this season it's fallen so far short of expectations. Um, I'm not really sure I bought that argument, um, but he was very much defiant and said that uh, coming to why they ended up on the hards, they was they were just so they were so focused on Verstappen um, that they were. They were basically just willing to react entirely to him. So when he made that that pit stop, when he was uh, running behind um, Hamilton and and Signs, obviously he was looking to make the undercut to jump from fourth to second, and it and and it obviously worked overall. And it that basically triggered um, a, a reaction from Ferrari, even though they knew that that was going to put Leclerc on for a thirty lap stint. So then they just had to work out right, what do we do for this one? Well, obviously it's only the hard. The hard is the only viable tire for a thirty-lap stint. So they were, and they they just expected the, the 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 hard to do better than it did. Bonotto's logic was that it would be difficult in terms of warm up, but then it would um, 
be it would stabilize and then after about 11 laps into a stint it would become the faster tire so that was their expectation um i don't really understand how they came to this conclusion based on everything i've heard about what the uh reaction to the hard tires was after friday when conditions were much warmer they had ample time to notice that the alpines weren't tearing up trees deep into a hard tire stint uh, so I don't really think the argument holds holds much water, and it it was just it was to me to me it just smacked of Ferrari again being so obsessed with track position they were losing sight of the bigger picture of the race and what they needed to do to to, to win it because as soon as they as soon as they reacted, even though they only re- they reacted within a lap. Verstappen's outlap was so fast that he'd probably halved more than half the gap to 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 Leclerc. So he Leclerc rejoined on the worst on a worse tire with worse warm up and a two second lead. So yeah, as Mark was explaining earlier, it was super easy for Max to overtake Charles not once but twice, and they just sort of set themselves on a on a hiding to nothing. Bonotto tried to argue that an example of just the underlying lack of pace from the car was in Sainz's final stint versus Hamilton's because they were both on sauce. Hamilton had four laps fresher set of tyres and Sainz was nowhere near him. Uh, Hamilton, I think, closed, what was it, a 10 and a half, 11 second gap, passed him with ease and, and, and pulled away. So there, there was clearly a, a fundamental lack of performance in Ferrari. Again, as Mark was explaining earlier, it shifted away from what we saw on Friday, but I don't buy the... The, the Ferrari justification for being on hards or, or how they're trying to to shield them, them themselves here uh, but maybe I'm being uh, maybe I'm not being charitable enough do either of you two buy it? It's a very curious one because all the talk on Friday I remember speaking to Mario Isler at Pirelli who basically agreed the hard didn't look like a, a great race tyre because it was a chunk slower than the medium and it potentially wasn't even any more Durable, obviously different cars react in a different way. But the key thing is that I feel that Ferrari almost overlooked this this hard question mark. It's like they were playing cards early on when they did their two medium stints and reacting to things without thinking, oh, this might put us into trouble. And if you look at the way the rest of the race worked, quite a few people went onto hards, but those that did were either desperate or forced to out of necessity. We saw the Alpines used hards, the McLarens used hards. Well, they only had one set of mediums carried through. Their mistake was previously when they didn't uh, save a, the second set of mediums to carry into the race or people like Magnussen who had that really early stop. So what did he really have to lose? So it, that's the thing that's a bit odd. Yeah, absolutely right. The pace wasn't great for the Ferrari, but one weakness doesn't neg- doesn't negate another, does it, Mark? No, exactly. And also there's a question of um, why, why didn't they have at least a look at it on, on Friday. And you could say the same to Red Bull, but at least Red Bull um, put it on for the reconnaissance laps. Um, so, it, yeah, I think it was just, uh, I think there's not enough depth of, of data being analysed there. Um, I think it's, um, it's it's maybe too, too the, the, their actions are maybe too informed by just, habit and pat- previous patterns rather than you know detailed dig dig deep analysis of um of what's going on and you know the, the, if the you could see just looking at mercedes's run on the hard and uh, i think um an alpine did it as well it was very very poor on friday you, you don't have to use use it on your own car to see that that was a poor performance that was a poor tire and if it's the hardest compound and it's poor on a 47-degree track, it stands to reason is going to be hopeless on a 27-degree track. So, you know, I don't even get why they would have been surprised. Yeah, that, that's the very odd thing. They seem very certain in their defence, and you just don't really know what that's based on, other than what you say there, Mark, just history. And, yeah, history is a nice starting point. If you'd asked me on Thursday afternoon what would happened in the race i'd be saying well probably people won't be that keen on the soft i want to use the hard and the medium i literally asked you this in the the head of the weekend and you said exactly that nothing wrong with prior (laughs) probability but the the conversations then on friday were were that and that was what really really surprised me and yeah what what concerns me is that mattia bonotto 
a 100% say shouldn't be scapegoating people or anything, but if there's a weakness and a problem, at least accept it. We see Toto Wolf do this. He will blame the problem, as he likes to say, not not the person. But Bonotto just seems to be batting it away. It's like, no, we've done everything perfectly. It's like, well, sorry, you, you haven't. No, he's, he's now saying, like, and I, and I do agree with this part of what he's saying, where he, his emphasis is on that they don't need to change anything for the second half of the season. I think he means in terms of personnel. Um, which, well, absolutely, they shouldn't be doing. Yeah, that. and I and I agree and I agree with that because what they've got now is a situation where they can get themselves into a position to almost win a Grand Prix. They're just making small but crucial mistakes in in key phases a lot of the time. Now, what you ideally want to do is learn from those situations, have the same people in places in in place, and then make better decisions, make smarter decisions. We heard um, Mercedes and Red Bull both being incredibly. Um, positive and complimentary about the job that their strategists did at uh, tough times today keep keeping cool under pressure was was a big part of it but Bonotto is basically saying that they don't need to change they just need to learn the problem is they've had loads of opportunities to learn this this, this is not a 2022 problem this is far deeper rooted than that there are quite a few people that are still there that were still making those mistakes before so if you're not changing the people, I think you need to try and look at the processes. And this comes back to what Mark was saying. How deep are they going into their data? What data are they using? And also, I think, which you both hinted at, how are you weighting your different data sources? Uh, are you react? I would be putting much more greater emphasis on what I'm seeing in front of me. And then your sort of secondary tier, I think, is what you know from Friday and Saturday FP3, which is obviously irrelevant in this case because it was wet. And then your third thing, which is basically something you've discarded by this point, and that's your history. That's, oh, we've done this before. That sometimes comes into play when you're like, oh, actually, strategically, we could roll the dice here. And if you remember two years ago, we actually managed to make 35 laps work on the medium. So we could probably make the medium work. That's the sort of thing where history comes back and can inform the decision you're making now. But just, well, usually you quite like to have track position. Let's do everything we can to have track position. Oh, we've run out of mediums. What do we do? Put the hard on. Why? Don't know. Let's just do it. It, it doesn't feel a great deal more refined as a thought process than that. And it's notable that after the race, Charles Leclerc wasn't massively towing the party line, was he? He was quite happy to admit there were problems. So, yeah, I think there are those internally who know there are problems. Binotto will know there's some problems, but... It, it slightly concerns me when that's the message that's going out to everyone that, yeah, all the decisions were fine. Because sometimes you need to look at it and say, well, okay, our decisions and our reasoning were fine. It's like, well, okay, if your decisions and reasoning based on the information you had were fine, one, how are you acquiring that information? And two, are you looking at the correct information? It's almost like they've gone so far in overcorrecting the infamous Ferrari blame culture and and culture of, of, of pointing fingers that they've now got to the point where like you can't acknowledge problems. Going back to what you said before about, yeah, you can identify problems, just don't then throw an individual under the bus or a department under the bus. It almost feels... because but I, I do think Bonotto's done a good job within that team in terms of turning it into a place that looks after the individual and thinks as a collective and acts as a collective. I really do think there has been positive progress there since he took charge of the team. But it's just a bit of... A, it just goes to show as far as I'm concerned anyway, that what people think a no-blame culture is and what it actually is and how you implement it are very different. They're, they're subtle, but, but they are different. And it's not it's not about, to come back to almost to what you said, Ed, it's not about you can't say there are problems and admit things weren't done properly or as well as they could have been. That's how you learn. That's It's constructive self-criticism. And that... I mean, internally, maybe it's completely different. Maybe they're great at this internally. But I feel like if they were, they wouldn't keep making the same mistakes. Yeah, that's the problem. It's been the same old story so many times this year. And they need to get on top of that because they've built a car that's very, very quick. Okay, it wasn't so quick today, but it's a good car. And they need to be properly in the championship fight with it. And really, they're barely, barely hanging on to it at the current rate. Well, they now have... Uh, they now have as many podium finishes this season across the cars as Mercedes do. And Lewis Hamilton now has more podium finishes this season than Charles Leclerc. And Ferrari have got eight pole positions to Mercedes one. So the performance of that car is not the problem. <laughs> tell, tell me how. If Imagine if we'd been sitting on the podcast after the Australian Grand Prix, three races into the season, just gone... 
Do you know where I think we'll be by the summer break? Max will have nearly 100 points in his pocket and Mercedes will be all over Ferrari and Leclerc will have a couple uh, three wins and a couple more podiums this year. We'd have sounded insane. And what's just amazing is how this whole weekend just turned round. You just said Ferrari 1-2 was possible on Friday and Saturday as well. You just said a 1-2 was doable. Sainz really should have had pole. George Russell pips him to pole with a really well strung together lap, but not in a quicker car by any stretch of imagination, a slower car. So it's just the way this weekend has unraveled. It's just showcased some of the weaknesses of Ferrari, you'd have to say. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Victorinox, the makers of the original Swiss Army Knife, have been a reliable companion for life's everyday challenges, mastering functionality, innovation, iconic design, and uncompromising quality with its products. The Victorinox Swiss Army Knife provides you with all the things you don't think about until you need it. Tweezers, a screwdriver, and even a corkscrew. With the Victorinox Swiss Army Knife, you can be prepared to master everyday life. You can find Victorinox Swiss Army Knives at Dick's Sporting Goods. Well, Scott, we're going to come back to Verstappen and Red Bull. Ferrari's hogged the headlines recently with all its failures and strategic controversies, but Verstappen and Red Bull just been the complete opposite and racked up the results. And perhaps we've almost not talked about Verstappen and Red Bull enough in recent post-race podcasts just because they've just been doing things right and we've been focusing on the team that's been doing things wrong. There is definitely an element of that. Sometimes it's been a case of it's almost been like Red Bull and Verstappen haven't done anything particularly special. They've just sort of been there. Um, Spain is a good example of that. For, you know, Verstappen made a key mistake in, in that Grand Prix. Red Bull had a very messy weekend. Uh, they had the, the, the DRS problems in, in qualifying and they still came out of that with, with a win. We've seen it at a couple of other races as well. They've been there to pick up the pieces. But this weekend, or this race rather, was emphatically not picking up the pieces. This was just this was Red Bull and Verstappen. Mark sort of hinted at this as well. Just being an absolute force in the, in the Grand Prix. I, I think from start to finish, Max's 360 degrees, 360 degree spin, obviously not included. That was a blot on his copybook, unless whatever the clutch throttle gear shift issue was did genuinely cause that spin, and it wasn't really his fault. But I'm going to blame him for it for now because I think it's the only thing we can do. They were almost entirely faultless from the very beginning, recognizing the issue with the start tire and deciding, no, actually, we need to we need to change that. Max was probably a bit too careful on the run down to turn one. He, he, he let himself get pinched um, a little bit, but he had a sensible attitude there, which was, I am in the midfield. I've got a massive championship lead. I'm not going to win it here at the first corner. I just need to survive this. And he did that. Came out of the other side. Got a bit lucky when um, Fernando Alonso got a bit rude on Daniel Ricciardo and Ricciardo and Kevin Magnussen had a coming together. Max avoided that, gained a couple of places there, which was useful because that undid a little bit of the damage perhaps going down to turn one. But then it was all about making use of that soft tyre in the in the, in the, in the, in, in the opening stint, try and gain some places and then Red Bull be aggressive with, 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 with the undercuts. Okay, use the undercut here. Boom, Verstappen did it. Nailed the outlap, nailed the start of his next stint got past Hamilton. Um he he going into the um for the for the second pit stop, same thing. Nail the undercut, get ahead, out, right, behind Leclerc, catch Leclerc, pass Leclerc. Okay, do a little spin, <laughs> catch him, pass him again. It was just it was just it was aggressive, it was opportunistic, it was very well executed. Even the 360 degree spin for goodness sake was perfectly done as you were talking about before. So this was just to me this was everything that this this race and performance from Red Bull and Verstappen, but also Ferrari as well, just summed up to me why this is inevitable that Verstappen's going to win this world championship. There, there, there's no other outcome, and, and I'm not just saying that because he is now what is it, 80 points in front. Obviously, that is a that's a huge points lead. I think Ed, you were doing some number crunching. There's only really 
if you trade old money for new money, there's only one other season where this kind of deficit's been overturned, right? Yeah, that was 76 when James Hunt won the title, having been 33 points uh, behind Nicky Lauda. But of course, Nicky Lauda had his Nürburgring crash, which obviously knocked him out for some uh, some races. And then he came back very, very quickly. So, you know, that's an exceptional set of circumstances. That wasn't a normal fight back. Exactly. So, yes, it's easy to say because of the points lead that this just happens in the bag. But it's more about... There was some symbolic value to, to to this Grand Prix in terms of what it said about both of those teams. You've got Ferrari in a situation where they start the race second and third. Their tit- main title rival is 10th. The other car's 11th. How do you not win that Grand Prix on a track where it is difficult to 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 overtake? That That is astonishing to me. It, so it highlighted Ferrari's shortcomings. Leclerc even alluded to the fact that there always does seem to be something that's just holding them back at the moment. They need to get better at piecing together weekends. They're not doing that. Whereas on the Red Bull Verstappen side, they're just they're just unstoppable. They're just this championship juggernaut at the moment where there's all sorts of hurdles come their way. Verstappen made a mistake in his first run in, in Q3. Then the second run, he had a power unit problem. Fortunately, they were able to identify that power unit problem. And I think Christian Horner said afterwards that had they not identified that problem and then made the power unit changes that they made for the race, if that if that part that had failed in Verstappen's power unit had failed 10 kilometers later or something like that, it would have been on the way to the grid. And then that would have been race done before it had even started. So they're identifying these things that they're, they're, they're coming back from, from these kinds of hurdles. They're then handling races very, very well. They've stopped shooting themselves in the foot in as dramatic a way as they were at the start of the year. Clearly there are still some problems there, but nothing like that we've seen at Ferrari. So, just across the board, I think you see now that Red Bull Verstappen combination is it is just a championship winning combination. They look every inch a, a pairing that was capable of going toe to toe with Lewis Hamilton and Mercedes last year. We know the standard that was set there. Verstappen and Red Bull did raise the game and meet that standard in 2021. And Ferrari and Leclerc can't bring themselves to that level. Not straight away, not, not one big jump from where they were last year to where they are now. So the standard that Verstappen and Red Bull are setting is too high for Ferrari and Leclerc at the moment. And I include Charles in that because he has made two key mistakes this season. He ha- he has hurt hurt himself um, uh, in, in a big way. Obviously, France last week being the, being the main example of that. So Red Bull and Verstappen are just, they're just championship bound at this point. It's only, you know, it's only acts of God that can, can stop them from winning these championships. Mark, we should mention Sergio Perez. You <laughs> did... Briefly mentioned him in passing as not being especially quick. So what actually went wrong for him this weekend? Finished fifth, but he's just been a shadow of the driver he was in the early stages of the season. Yeah. Um, I mean, we, we, we know that they, as they've developed the car and it, it, it's, you know, since around a third of the way through the season when um, around Monaco time, Verstappen was saying that, you know, it wasn't responsive enough for him and needed more needed more front end. And they've been developing the car in a way that's um, been aerodynamically bringing the, the, the centre of pressure forward to give them that in, more instant bite. And that just seems to have coincided with putting Perez back where he was last year, um, where he, he, can't, he can't drive that sort of car. Um, he's... I mean, he he wound himself up in qualifying to eventually get within three tenths. It was a that was a, the, the um, in, in France, but in this weekend he didn't he didn't make it out of Q two again. Um, no, it 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 seems that it, whenever they chase the raw performance of the car that Verstappen can access. It, it leaves Perez unable to drive it. And not just, but it's, it's a pattern we've seen. We've talked about plenty with the second Red Bull drivers. It's uh, what Alex Albon suffered with. It's what Pierre Gasly suffered with. When when the, when you make the car as responsive as Verstappen can exploit, the other driver um, struggles to go with it. And earlier this season, the car wasn't like that. The car was a much more... Mm, tame and benign car maybe not quite as quick as it's subsequently become and Perez was fine with it um so yeah he seems to have lost his way uh he's lost his mojo a little bit 
and um, is 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 struggling. Even when he's being interviewed, he doesn't seem he doesn't seem uh, confident. He doesn't seem as though he's nailed it in his own head what he needs to do. It still seems to be all question marks and doubts. And that's you know that's not where you um, conjure great personal performances from. Still third in the world championship, though only five points behind Leclerc, so that's that's not too bad a, a half season's work. But yeah, he probably needs the break and to come back refreshed. Well, it's time for our regular chat about Grid Rival, everyone's favourite fantasy motorsport game that includes the races own league. When it comes to my team, I'm sad to report that my bold and slightly overexcited gambit of signing Nicholas Latifi for a race after he topped. <laughs> That's a fair response there from Scott. After he topped FP3 and making my double points driver did not work out, I must admit I was just liking the idea of doing something ridiculous that would pay off big time. Didn't really work. He did have the, he was the third fastest driver in the first sector in qualifying, though, of all. Which How many points honest. did you get for that? Not very many. Not very many, judging by the fact my total for the week is 824 points, despite having Verstappen and Red Bull enough to beat you, Scott. No, it's not. And and I had a bad week as well because I wasn't quite as uh, leery as you were. But I had a couple of uh, punty choices in my team. I went for Alex Albon because I have I quite like the look of the Williams at, at one point and uh, Albon's just a better driver than Latifi. So I just thought I'll go with him, make him my talent driver for the double points. But yeah, it was obviously not a, um, not a particularly lucrative return. And I also went for uh, Sebastian Vettel as well. So I was very disappointed when I saw... That he was, they were scrambling to get his car ready for qualifying. Then he got knocked out in Q one, but at least he did a good job for me in the race. Um, unfortunately, I was burned by Ferrari's failure in the Grand Prix, so only Charles Leclerc did nothing for me. And then I picked up solid points only in uh, Alonso, Norris, and Alpine as my constructor. So it was okay, but it wasn't. Um, and it beat you, but it wasn't. Uh, that's not a hard thing to do. You don't have to score many points to beat you, so I didn't do particularly well anyway. Good enough, that's what you can uh, can call it. Leading overall is someone who's doing far, far, far better than good enough. Jackie, 78958103 for a third race in a row, I believe, on top of the league. Another good haul from Hungary for that team, even though it didn't contain Verstappen. Grid rival, still open for sign-ups. So you'll have plenty of time to consider your team choices during the August break. So download the Grid Rival app or visit the website so you can get involved. The link is in the episode description for this podcast. Well, Mark, Mercedes, they struggled badly on Friday. All at sea in the rain hit FP3, and yet George Russell took that shock first F1 pole position. How do you explain that one? Yeah, I mean, they got um, that that car is traditionally this 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 year, it doesn't fire up its tyres quickly enough over a single lap, but is usually very good over a stint um, for the same reason, and it doesn't as it's struggling to take several laps to bring those tyres up to temperature, so it's not taking as much energy out of those tyres than the the Red Bull and the Ferrari, which can switch them on straight away. And that tends to make them in better shape towards the end of the stint, but they're usually too far back from the Red Bull and Ferrari for that to, to really matter. But that that is that has been the pattern of that car since they've got it, you know, more or less it's sanitary once they've stopped it bouncing all over the place anyway. Um so they came here on the, the you know the, the very hot Friday. Um, they still had that problem with the the, the fronts, um, but there was also the the you have to it, it's it's a circuit which can impose a lot of heat deg of the rear tires over a stint, and they were suffering that. You saw that in the long runs. Whatever they did to alleviate one of the problems is going to make the other problem worse. As uh, George Russell was explaining on Saturday, he said they were absolutely lost on Friday night um, because you know they, they were in this corner. Um, but they, what they decided to do was, and I don't, the everyone is very reluctant to specify exactly what change they made. But it was designed to alleviate one of the problems in the either the race or the qualifying, in the acceptance that it was going to, you know, make it difficult for the other problem. And the way the track changed, it was <laughs> it just dovetailed perfectly with the change that they'd made. 
Um, and it was so radically different. The conditions were so radically different at the, the low track temperatures of Saturday and today compared to Friday that actually the tyres were working in a completely different way and the changes they'd made were exactly the right ones, as it turned out. Um, and it was you know, really, they probably maximised that car. They got every single thing there was to get out of that car this weekend um, from a very unpromising beginning. Plus, of course, George Russell did do a very good job in qualifying. He he said it was probably the first of his Williams special type qualifying mm. laps that he's done since making the move to to Mercedes. It wasn't fastest in any of the three sectors, but just strung it together. Carlos Sainz was not able to put everything together. A bit of a moment at turn five, lost a bit of time through the lap. So I think he was 0.168 off his theoretical best. and He should have been going even quicker than the theoretical best, really, because the the track was uh, was evolving. So. Big moment though, Scott, for for Russell to get that first pole position, even if his teammate looked a bit quicker and had the DRS problem, so it wasn't a factor. Yeah, um, ultimately, Russell was the one who who pieced it together. Um, he he kept uh, he kept his head in a very stressful situation. Um, he has done these uh, special laps before, but I do think they're slightly different when you're doing them as the underdog and. There's pressure associated with those laps anyway. You know, you're desperately trying to when you know you've got a a car that once or twice a year is only good enough for points, and this is a weekend where you can genuinely be in Q3, so you've got absolutely nail it so that you get there. That kind of thing. Obviously, perilous conditions at Spa last year. So, don't don't get me wrong. It's not that he's um he's he's had it easy when he's pulled these laps out the bag, but there's just something different when. You've been waiting, what was this, round 13, I want to say, of the season, which just sounds ridiculous. Um, they've been waiting 13 races to have a car that actually felt good over one lap. And both Russell and Hamilton said that this car did feel that. Like, that once the once once it dried and they got into to, to qualifying, they were they could they could feel how potent the, the, the car was. It just uh, gave them the confidence, I think, to lean on it without the rear sort of just feeling a little bit shaky underneath them. And Russell knew that this was the chance. And obviously knowing how important track position is, you get that pole position, you know what the reward could be come Sunday. So uh, full credit to him. Um, I didn't think uh, in a normal situation for Mercedes, I wouldn't have uh, pegged Russell to be waiting until just before the summer break to get his first pole in Formula One. But it's been a slightly different season than I think everyone in that team expected. Now he's got it. I'm sure it won't be the last yeah, I think there's no doubt there'll be more pole positions in the future for George Russell. Question from Mike Griggs from the Race Members Club. Do you believe that Mercedes are really that unsure about why the car is coming alive? We'll come to you first on this one, Scott. I think they're unsure about why exactly it was so good in qualifying in, in Hungary because there is a there is this general trend of upward performance and that that is well understood. That is because they are making the car better. They're They've got on top of the porpoising. They're now trying to add more load to the car. They're trying to improve some of the vices that, that, that it's got. So that is all broadly understood. What they don't understand is that there is this annoying trait that the car has had this season to, to work really well in one set of conditions. And when I say conditions, that can mean all manner of things, ambient temperature, track temperature, wind direction, wind speed. But then run to run it can change. We saw this, was it Silverstone, where run to run, they were having porpoising at, at, at Cops, for example. So there are just things about the car that don't make sense. They don't have a full handle on, and I still don't think they're seeing everything like this in Wind Tunnel and CFD and and that kind of thing. Wolf sort of hinted at this at the weekend. He sort of suggested that there was almost a little bit of having to reverse engineer some correlation with some of the straight, like more quirky experiments that they're having to do, because they're 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 doing setup items or setup work at the track based on what they've done at the factory, but it doesn't quite work the way they expect. So then they're having to then try and unpick that a little bit and then see what does work, and then they take that away and they go right, okay, this is our reference. And it's not about making track correlate to to sim at the moment. It's almost like trying to make your simulations correlate to the track. Um, so I do think there is an element of confusion still with everything they're doing, which is why there does remain an asterisk over this entire weekend. Wolf said after qualifying he doesn't want any more false dawns. 
Now they've had France, which was a better weekend. They've gone to Hungary, quite a different track, quite a different track profile, different circumstances, different conditions. Had another strong weekend and crucially added qualifying onto just strong race pace. So getting better, I don't think they've still got firm answers yet. Well, do you think that they get it? Do you think they're at least getting it more than they used to? Oh, yeah, they're discovering more and more about the card every every run they do, obviously. And and they are clearly making progress with it, but um, they're under no illusions about what this weekend was about. This weekend was about they got the tyres into the temperature window and Ferrari didn't and Red Bull wasn't there. So, you know, it, it was it's really not any more complicated than, than, than that to explain this weekend. Um, I don't think they feel that they have a car which can go under normal circumstances toe-to-toe with the Red Bull or the Ferrari. They, they, they're on under normal circumstances. They're... And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Typically, six or seven tenths off in qualifying, and maybe four tenths off in the race. Um, I don't think that has fundamentally changed. Uh, we've just seen a weekend with a funny set of circumstances, and they were very, very good at um, taking full advantage of them. Let's talk McLaren versus Alpine. Mark Lando Norris for McLaren was best of the rest in seventh, ahead of the Alpines of Fernando Alonso and Esteban Ocon. So that means Alpine holds on to fourth place heading into the summer break. The battle was distorted by that strategic divergence with Alpine only having the one set of mediums for its two drivers. So they one stopped, whereas the McLarens two stopped. They did have to get onto the hards as well. But basically, once Alpine had switched onto those hards for their second stint, they pretty much disappeared from view, certainly in terms of the battle with Norris. It's a bit different with Ricardo, who uh, also struggled massively on, on the hards. So do you think McLaren... Was genuinely the stronger team in that battle, or do you think it was a little bit circumstantial? I think McLaren had the edge this weekend, just like Alpine had the edge the uh, previous weekend. Um, I think since the the upgrade in France, uh, they do seem to have um, made some good progress with the McLaren. We, we'll see. We get a better idea as we go to different um, circuit layouts because it's – over the season, the Alpine has been a more versatile car and the, the McLaren a bit more up and down. But um, let's see if that trait has been rectified by the the update. But um, yeah, Lando was the only guy who didn't really have his race ruined by by the hard tyre. But he was one of the – he managed – he did – he was the only guy that managed to get it sort of up to temperature and, and get a, a, some sort of tune from it. Um, and obviously it helped that he wasn't on it for as long as the Alpine guys. Um, and as you say, Daniel Ricciardo just <clears throat> couldn't get that tie to work at all. And of course, Daniel Ricciardo finished 15th, Scott. He ran in the points early on. Five-second penalty for clattering Lance Stroll. Fair cop? Yes, that is about as uh, banged to rights as anything has ever been banged to rights. Yeah, even Daniel Ricciardo agrees with that. So uh, it's very, very difficult to, to we argue. We just steamed in, didn't he? Just too much speed cold tyres, hard tyres that were never going to be up to temperature and just just slid into him. It was, the one thing I would say about it, it was it's un- uncharacteristically clumsy. I don't, there's not really, I can't can't think of many, if any, incidents of Ricardo doing something like that because it was really poor. Well, it's circumstantial. It's those pesky hard tyres again because Ricardo was on the hards and he said, as I heard he was on a soft out of the pits, I thought, oh no, this is going to be tough. <laughs> so basically, yeah, uh, he, he said he saw Stroll after it to sort of do a brief apology. And Ricardo said that Stroll said, yeah, the hearts are a mess. So they kind of both knew what had, had happened there. But frustrating for Ricardo, who was in points contention, but he struggled a lot more with the hard. As you said, Mark Norris seemed to do pretty well out of the hard, probably the best performer on the hard all, all things considered but yeah Ricardo struggled more and just uh, just dropped away so another one of those difficult races for him Aston Martin Scott they grabbed the attention when they turned up with that rear wing geometry that some question might be against the intent of the regulations any serious concerns there about legality 
doesn't sound like it. Uh, the FIA has obviously been aware of that process pretty much from start to finish. The intentions, the um, the 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 exact shapes, and um, not just not just how it's been designed and what it's going to look like, and how they've interpreted the technical regulations to create that shape, but also the intention of the 2022 rules with the weight characteristics off the the rear wing. The FAA seems to be happy with that. So they had the the green light to produce it and run it. No one seemed to be kicking up a massive fuss about it. Um, There's no reason why it won't be used later in the year, particularly at high downforce circuits, but it could be used um, if they produce more more of them in in that way. It could be used at not necessarily low downforce, but medium downforce circuits as well. And then into 2023, um but it was uh it was an interesting design and when i looked at it i i just couldn't work out why if this was because to me to me that is basically just a very clever mashup of the 2022 interpretation that almost every team has universally gone with and what we had last year so my guess is that we're going to see quite a few teams crop up with that if it turns out to be quite useful i'm sure all of them are going to be checking it now in CFD before they close for the shutdown. Yeah, there have been some quick uh, CFD models built to evaluate that one. But yeah, it does seem to be fine. The, the regs are quite difficult to explain because it's all CAD geometries and there are a few rules about radiuses and crucially where a radius isn't required that allows it to have that kind of flat leading edge of the, the end plate, if you want to think of it that way. But 10th place for Sebastian Vettel. Of course, Sebastian Vettel on the weekend, he announced his retirement. Have a listen to our podcast of a few days ago to get everything you need to know about Vettel's future. We should also talk about Hasmark. Big expectations for the upgrade. It's the only major one of the year. 14th place for Schumacher, but that was in the old spec car. 16th for Magnussen in the new spec. So what did we learn about the new upgrade package? Um, I mean, it's quite a big package. It, it is, it's substantially different at the at the rear. Um, a, a bit more Ferrari-like, not not that surprisingly. Um, but yeah, this track isn't a typically has sort of track. It um, slow and medium and long corners. They 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 tend to go better on the high speed corners. Um, so it was it wasn't a competitive weekend for Haas in general. Um, the new car was quicker than the old car, but it, Kevin Magnussen is usually quicker than Mick Schumacher anyway. So. Difficult to quantify it, but yeah, it, it, it did look to have a, a handy advantage over the old car. So let's see when we get onto tracks which are more suited to, to the basic car. Yeah, Magnussen seemed to reckon that fundamentally the car has performance in it, but they're just not really on top of the setup, as you'd expect, because they only had the two dry practice sessions on Friday before going into qualifying. I doubt the wet running on Saturday was especially valuable. Well, we'll finish off our final post-race pod of the first half of the season with a barrage of questions from the Race Members Club. First up, one for you, Mark. Christopher Partridge asks, is it time for Ferrari team principal Mattia Bonotto to go? Ferrari have thrown away this championship. He's been in charge for long enough, yet still Ferrari make the same mistakes week after week. And if he did go, who would you choose to replace him? Well, sacking the guy in charge is what Ferrari always used to do, and um, apart from during the Ross Braun John Todd era, and it led to a sequence of, you know, the, the team falling ever further and further back and uh, the whole place operating under a culture of fear. What Bonato has done has changed that. And as we talked about earlier, he maybe um, hasn't yet managed to combine that with um, the acceptance of uh, of of responsible not responsible not, not taking on responsibility but taking on um and accepting weaknesses and eradicating them without making it uh fearful for the people there um so he doesn't want that fear culture and he seems to have got rid of that very successfully he's also overseen the most impressive technical um ferrari for many many years so i think he's got a lot more right than he's got wrong. Um, but it's frustrating as a Ferrari fan if you keep seeing the same things going wrong over and over again. But it's for the same reason. And I think if you 
can combine what he's brought with um, a little bit more of the the culture that we that that, that, that we see at the, the the top teams that have been there, the top teams for a long time, like Mercedes and Red Bull, about how you go about eradicating weaknesses, then I think it would it, it will be absolutely a, a formidable team, and I think just sacking the man in charge because things have gone wrong is absolutely the wrong way of thinking. Yeah, it's a little bit football club, isn't it? Scott, next question for you. Elliot Crossan says, with five podiums in a row and performances like today, is Lewis Hamilton proving to be clearly the better Mercedes driver now that the experimental setups have stopped? Uh, I don't think, I wouldn't phrase it quite like that. I think it's more that he's showing the edge that he has on Russell in like-for-like situations. And that's only to be expected. Hamilton is one of the greatest drivers in F1 history. And Russell's in his fourth season in Formula 1 and his first with Mercedes. So there's going to be a a difference between them. What we're seeing is uh, broadly what I might have expected before the start of the year to play out, which is that Russell has some incredible peaks. He can beat Hamilton when he nails it. He's got particularly impressive qualifying performances in him. But Hamilton, I think, is just a slightly savvier driver overall. And I still think the championship picture is distorted by some quirky circumstances in the first sort of six or seven races in particular. But this run of results is a bit more reflective of not just Hamilton's own performance level, but also the balance of power between the two. And I think it's quite telling that even though Russell started on pole and Hamilton started quite a few places further back and was, uh, I think, 15 seconds behind him at one stage. Um, it's telling that, that Hamilton was the one who was able to to come through. Hamilton always just, first stint, maybe not so much. Um, obviously, slightly different situations tyre-wise in, in, in the first stint and they were on different strategies through the Grand Prix, but they, Hamilton always just seemed to have a little bit more command of where he was at in terms of uh, tyre management and he just seemed to be able to push and um, manage at the same time, which is just this gift that he's got. We know he's a bit of a tire whisperer, so I, I think that's I think that's what we're seeing. We're just seeing that little edge that Hamilton has got, just because he is so damn experienced and so damn good. And then George just at that absolute peak can't quite live with him yet. Stop. Question from Danny Danielski. The question is about expectations versus reality. He says, every time we go to Hungary, the team that performs best in the corners is favourite, and one way or another, that team ends up not performing well. With the last generation of cars, everyone always put Red Bull as favourite, but they really didn't have the results to back it up. This year, Ferrari has similar traits, and yet Red Bull emerged as the team with the best race pace, despite expecting to struggle. What's going on here? Um, it's the the usual complication of tyres and track conditions, and... Um like I said earlier, if we'd, if we'd um, seen the, the, the Friday conditions throughout the weekend, um, I think we would probably have seen the biggest Ferrari domination of the season because they, they, that Friday was utter, utter dominance. Um, Red Bull couldn't live with it, but as soon as you change the circumstances and you bring track temperatures into it and throw everything that you've learned on Friday up in the air, then yeah, it it, um, it it comes down to how responsive each team is in adapting to the new situation. But if we just looked at it on pure performance, um, if the conditions had remained stable, Ferrari, Ferrari, I believe, would have had its um, most dominant performance of the season. Scott, the next question is from Christopher Parrott, who says, this was a bad race and result for Ricardo to take into the summer break. Will McLaren want the issue resolved by Belgium? And of course, the issue there is the question marks over his future that persist, despite him stressing that he does have a contract. Well, I think that will come down to whether or not there's any scope for them to have conversations during the summer break. I get the impression that Daniel wants to go away and ignore the Formula One world for at least a couple of weeks. Um, he did say he really needs this this break. Um, he's talked before about how helpful he finds it to just be able to go and disconnect. He's very emotional and very competitive and he cares a lot about it. So I think he does find that detachment particularly uh, helpful in the situation he finds himself in now with the particularly tricky six months or so. I think that's even more sensitive uh, a thing than ever. McLaren just wants to know 100% either way what's going on next year. 
Now, Ricardo has obviously pledged his commitment to the team, said he's going to see out his contract. He's not going to to, to walk away. Um, performances like this weekend, this is the problem. We keep having this conversation. I've said this so many times now on this podcast. One or two slightly better weekends and another one like this. So I'm going to say the same thing I've said after every race like this one. He will not want to do another year of this. I'm convinced convinced by that just in sporting terms don't see why he'd want to put himself through it all the while that's the case all the while his performance levels are not up to what he expects from himself first and foremost let alone what McLaren expects from him I just don't think you can guarantee that he'll be around next year and all the while that's a question in that sense McLaren won't be happy so they want it resolved sooner rather than later but I don't know if there really is scope for that to get resolved over the summer break as an Aston Martin drive up grabs as well, of course, which could change things. Mark, the next question from Henri Isla. He asks, what has happened to Alfa Romeo? Bottas was a regular point scorer and now they're struggling towards the back of the midfield. Yeah, their development hasn't really been that fruitful. Um, and as they've put developments on for aero, it's added weight. And at just the time that a lot of the cars in that midfield have lost weight, it, it has been quite a significant swing and um yeah operationally they've had a few lost weekends where i think the car was inherently quite competitive and they, they didn't convert it but yeah it, i think at the moment it's not um it's not challenging alpine or even mclaren uh, on on raw performance and earlier in the season round probably Miami time and it, you know that that sort of time it, it absolutely was it was um, probably the best of the midfield cars but it's uh, it's it's development has just fallen back a bit yeah a new floor was on Bottas's car this weekend it worked reasonably well actually he did run in the top 10 for parts of the race but they were one of the teams that only had one set of medium so he did the medium hard one stopper and dropped out of the points and then retired very late on with a fuel system problem, as it was described by the team. Scott, next up from Louis Stromer is the question with the reports that drivers are not having the drink to save on weight. Should it be mandated as safety equipment, given the demanding environment the drivers operate in? I, I think a lot of drivers don't take the drink because I don't think they enjoy it. I think uh, some have heard Lewis Hamilton and Lando Norris talk about this in, in recent races where they they haven't used the what is commonly referred to as a drinks bottle, but it's not the conventional drinks bottle that you and I would uh, would normally think of. They haven't used them in a long, long time. Uh, Hamilton said after, was it France, his malfunctioned and it was being made a big thing of. And he just joked afterwards and said, I thought I'd try, I thought I'd have it because it was particularly hot. It didn't work. But he think he said something like it could have been broken for years for all I know because <laughs> he hasn't used it in so long. And Norris talked about it this week and said that he doesn't like doing it because it it just sits on your stomach when and and obviously it's not cold, it's not refreshing, it's very, quite gets quite warm and it's just a horrible feeling and then it sloshes around and it just makes it makes I've heard several drivers say it makes them feel sick during during the Grand Prix. I think that's a bigger thing rather than it being a weight, a weight thing. And so obviously if they're not going to be drinking it anyway, why install the system in the car? Yeah, and certainly I think making it mandatory to have to carry water and certainly mandatory to drink water is uh, perhaps not especially practical. Mark, next question from Oscar Robledo asks if there will be increased friction at Alpine and will that be the nudge for Alonso to go to Aston Martin? I think this reference is Alonso annoyance at Ocon's defence at the start. Yeah, yeah. With, um, I thought Ocon was a bit, a uh, little bit naughty there, a little bit out of order. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's been building that niggle because they are very, very closely matched generally on, on race days. And there's been a few times when it's it's got quite close. Mm, I, I don't think, I think um, Fernando's been around the block enough now to uh, not let that stuff get under his skin. Um, and as for heading off to Aston Martin, I, I, I think if Aston was on a, a clearly upward trajectory, he might be thinking about it as an option, um, given that um, he, he, he's not so far been offered as long a contract as he wants at Alpine. But at 41 years old, I, I don't think he's going to be affording to uh, hitch, his, hitch his wagon to anything other than uh, 
something which looks like it's it, it it's gonna gonna work over the immediate to short short to medium term, and I, um, that doesn't look to be what Aston where Aston is at the moment. So no, I I don't think so. I don't think it will trigger that, and I don't think um, I don't think anybody's gonna have a serious fallout. But uh, yeah, it'll certainly have uh, he'll have made his feelings known after the race. But um, I doubt it'll be uh, anything lingering from it. For what it's worth, I asked Alonso after the race um, if he expects to arrive at Spa with his uh, future fully sorted, and he said yes. So I can't imagine he'll be uh, sneaking off on holiday with Lawrence Stroll and and, and arranging a, a new contract and defection to, to uh, Aston Martin in that time. I think it'll be dotting some I's and crossing some T's on a two-year deal at Alpine. Yeah, well, Alonso said on Thursday that it would take 10 minutes to agree a deal and Omar Safnar after the race, the team principal at Alpine, said it would take 10 minutes. So both seem to be agreed on the timing. But yeah, that that length of contract might require a little bit of negotiation. Scott, the final question is going to you from Thomas Knights, who says, Kevin Magnussen had yet another first lap collision and in a race where points could have been possible. Is it fair to suggest it's becoming a bit of a trend for him? I mean, yeah, there is a little bit of that. He is... um... He, there were a couple of times earlier this year in particular on first laps where he was a bit clumsy. I didn't really think he could have done anything in this one. I saw the onboard and it just, I, obviously Ricardo I think just has to check up a little bit uh, because he's um, he's been helped, he's been dealt with quite rudely by, by Alonso. And I, I just don't think Magnussen's really got anywhere to go. So uh, I I did have a lot of sympathy when, when that happened. I don't think Magnussen's the... Um, the shrewdest of wheel-to-wheel races on opening laps. Sometimes I feel like he's uh, a bit clumsy or he's putting his car in a, a place where he's asking for trouble. But on this occasion, I, I didn't really feel like he was responsible. Yeah, I think that's a, a fair judgment on Magnussen, who certainly, as we said, when he made his comeback brings excitement let's put it that way he's always in the thick of things well thanks to scott and mark for your insight as always there's loads to read on our website so head to the race.com and don't forget the hyphen and there will continue to be plenty to read throughout the august break f1 may have a summer shutdown but we do not also if you need more to listen to check out some of the races other podcasts including bring back v10s and the race f1 tech show with a legend that is gary anderson and also check out our youtube channel simply search for the race the race f1 podcast will stay with you throughout the summer break so stay with us for everything you need to know from the world of formula one the athletic